majority of them may not have had any experience with a strike or a work um, stoppage of this nature. The spirits are up, the spirits are high. They seem to be in it for the long haul. I'm very excited for our membership to get back to having normalcy and for them to get their heavily anticipated wage increases that they've been waiting for. When I arrived in Thailand, I was an illegal migrant worker, but even though I work in a factory, I read news every day. I read about the minimum wage. I read about eight-hour working hour and how much workers should get paid for over time. So you can pitch an idea at the top of the day, and by the end of the day, you're on studio in a lobster uniform. I think we're given these cards. We're given this blueprint at birth, but I'm not fatalistic about it. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. The United Steelworkers has scheduled a vote for this coming Monday, February 21st, on ExxonMobil's latest ultimatum to lockdown workers at its oil refinery and processing plant in Beaumont, Texas. On today's show, we dip into the archives of the Workers Beat podcast for a report on this lockout, which started on May 1st, 2021. Then, from the 141 report, an update on the new contract at Hawaiian Airlines. Ong Cha, co-founder of Thailand's Migrant Worker Rights Network, is featured on the latest LaborLink podcast. And from the On Writing podcast, a producer, correspondent, and two writers talk about what their typical day looks like working on the set of The Daily Show. And in our final segment, Misty Rainwater Lights talks about being an online tarot card reader on the Blue Collar Gospel Hour. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we hope you do, you'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes. And of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website at laborradionetwork.org. Here's the show. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Speak Extra. I'm talking to the Reverend Harmon Dent of Beaumont, Texas. What's going on there with the steel workers, Reverend? Gene, thank you for having me this, this evening. Well, our steel workers here in Beaumont at the refinery and blending packaging plant are locked out by the company. Can you believe that? The company actually locked them out. That, that's different from a strike. Yes, the strikes is usually action taken by the workers about a union. Uh-huh. Uh, and a lockout is the company walks the employees out of the facility and tell them, don't come back till we give you a call. So this has got to do with their contract negotiations. What is it that the company wants that they're trying to take away that the workers don't want them to take away? The most significant part of it is um, seniority. The company wants to attack seniority, in which we know that seniority is the bread and butter of union sites of the union. So in other words, the company reserves the right to treat people just any way they want to treat them, no matter how long they've been working there. You hit the nail on the head. And if you don't have seniority, you don't really have a union. Yes, sir. You're correct. 
So would you categorize this whole thing as union busting? Yes, I would. And just to drive the point home, they locked them out. Yes, they, they did. The horse right. said, don't, don't come to work. We don't right. want you. Uh, until you agree to our um, standards, our okay. policy. Now, this yeah. happened. This happened nearly three weeks ago, right? Yes. So it's been about three weeks that the, the men and women, brothers and sisters, have been locked out of the site. And I have to tell you, Gene, that they are in good spirits. And they are in it for the long haul. But to say that uh, many of them, a majority of them, may not have had any experience with a strike or, or work um, stoppage of this nature, the spirits are up, spirits are high. They seem to be in it for the long haul. And then go on over to the the world headquarters of ExxonMobil, which was, up until a year or two ago, the richest corporation in the world, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The pandemic hey, gave them a, a great lick. But, hey, if you've been watching lately, the stock is coming back. Profitability mm-hmm. is on the rise. Matter of fact, what was the last quarter? They made $2.7 billion. They made all that money, and then they're trying to take it out on their workers. Well, Gene, you know, those, those workers have been essential workers throughout the pandemic. They've been there. They put in extra hours to see to it that refinery stay running. And through this, Texas Free, those employees were there dedicated. And this is the type of repayment they get for the dedication that they shown to send to it that the, the company, the refinery, the blend packaging plant remain running and being viable, you know, to, to meet the needs. Uh-huh. All right, that's Reverend Harmon Dent. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. Hello and welcome machinist union members and our allies in the labor movement. This is your weekly 141 report, and I'm your host, Dave Lehive, a communications representative for District Lodge 141. Our report topic this week is about District 141's new Hawaiian Airlines safety director, Kule McGuire. Aloha, Sister Kule, mahalo, and thank you for taking the time to join me on today's 141 report. Aloha, Dave. Nice to see you. It's good to see you too. So let me ask you this question. Um, do you work with a team of safety stewards around the system? Who do you work with when you have issues concerning safety? Well, currently I heavily rely on our membership and our shop stewards to bring forth the safety issues. We're currently putting together a safety committee. We do have some shop stewards that have transitioned over to safety, but we're not fully staffed yet. I'm That's one of my main goals is to get that committee up and going along with the LOA for the FAA to be part of the program and have it transition from GSIP to GSAP. So those are my two issues that we're working on currently. So I currently understand you've been fairly busy with the membership because the announcement was made not too long ago that we have a tentative agreement at Hawaiian Airlines. First off, how's that going and when do the members plan on voting? It's going well. We plan to ratify on the 16th of this month. We've been doing a roadshow within the islands. We have some of our negotiating committee officers out in the mainland stations right now answering all of the questions, and it looks good. There's a lot of positives that come with this new agreement, and I'm very excited for our membership to 
get back to having normalcy and for them to get their heavily anticipated wages that they wage increases that they've been waiting for. What's your personal goal at Hawaiian Airlines as you take on this important position? It is for our members to come to work and be able to go home um, fully whole. We've been having so many accidents. We have very low staffing right now, and it's just a very sad um, state that we're in where our members are feeling they have to rush and cut corners and we've been having some really heavy, serious accidents happening, and that has to stop. So one is to really have them understand that they don't have to cut those corners. If they see an issue, if they are have been a part of the issue, to please report it. That's what we have this process for. And to understand that we are short, right? And the company understands that sometimes that flight isn't going to go out on time. It does not mean we want you to put yourself at risk. So the, I'm hopeful that once we can get out there more after this ratification, we can get them to understand that we need them to go home to their families safe. As Hawaiian Airlines members are out there, I'm sure that you need help in getting advocates out there. What would be something they could do? Is there a number that they can reach at or what would be the best way to to reach out to you? Yes, my number is posted in all of the break rooms and they do call. We really suggest that they get to know the GSIP process and file those GSIPs so that we can review them as a committee. And it's just about education, right? We need to get out there and educate them on how to use the process to help themselves. Thank you, sister, for your in-depth report to talk about safety today and the work that you do. I appreciate you do taking the time for, uh, for coming on today. This concludes today's report. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and healthy. Bye for now. When I arrived in Thailand, I was an illegal migrant worker. But even though I work in a factory, I read news every day. I read about the minimum wage. I read about eight-hour working hours and how much workers should get paid for overtime. Hello and welcome. My name is Judy Gearhart, and this is the LaborLink podcast, where we share the personal stories and analysis of the brave individuals organizing workers in global supply chains. This podcast is a collaboration between Empathy Media Lab and the Accountability Research Center. I'm excited to share this interview with An Cha from the Migrant Worker Rights Network in Thailand. Migrant workers often endure wage theft, physical abuse, and horrible working conditions. Many of them are victims of human trafficking or debt bondage, having paid labor brokers to secure their job abroad. Here, An Cha talks about how migrant workers in Thailand are organizing and standing up to that abuse. Ong Cha, can you tell us what led you to leave Myanmar and what were the conditions like when you came to live in Thailand? At the time, you know, in 1988, there was the military in power and people were not happy. 
I was an an activist and I participate and lead the protest every day for a decade. And there were restriction on my freedom. I cannot leave my place. I cannot enjoy freedom of movement. So I decided to to go to Thailand because there were many Burmese migrants in Thailand already by that time. When did you start organizing again? When I arrived in Thailand, I was an illegal migrant worker. I worked in shrimp peeling shed with only 50 workers. Even though I worked in a factory, I read news every day. I read about the minimum wage. I read about eight-hour working hour and how much workers should get paid for overtime. After that, I contacted NGOs to get more information and talk to these 50 workers about our rights. It's actually like hard to motivate workers to organize. My grand workers are usually poor and they don't want to participate in uh, organizing. So I told them that we need to act collectively to win something. When Ong Cha explains the additional challenges to collecting dues and building a stable movement among workers living in precarious, often shifting situations, he highlights additional challenges in Thai labor law. Not only are migrant workers who make up the majority of the workforce in some sectors prohibited from forming and leading their own unions, there are also legal or administrative challenges to collecting members' dues, which further weaken the unions. Given Ong Cha's knack for tapping all resources available, I had to ask him about the different approaches to combating human trafficking and forced labor. Does he have any comments on how the international community can better support their work? During the COVID, we do not have enough staff and resources to reach out for workers. So I really appreciate if international community could could contribute to our effort to reach out and help migrant workers. Ong Cha, thank you so much for your time and for your commitment to workers. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you for listening. I hope Ong Cha's story provides new perspectives on migrant workers' struggles. International media and NGO campaigns play an important role in exposing forced labor, human trafficking, and the other ways migrant workers are abused. Yet coverage often focuses on rescue efforts, highlighting victim center solutions as opposed to power building solutions. MWRN's organizing efforts in Thailand are about building migrant worker power and their ability to bargain collectively. To find out more about the Migrant Worker Rights Network, Follow them on Facebook at MWRNORG. This podcast is a collaboration of the Accountability Research Center and Empathy Media Lab. To hear other great podcasts about worker rights, go to laborradionetwork.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Jerry Cole, and you're listening to On Writing, a podcast from the Writers Guild of America East. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by four writers from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, airing live on Comedy Central. Our guests include supervising producer and head writer, Jubin Perang, writers Kat Radley and Josh Johnson, and correspondent, Roy Wood Jr. 
Thanks so much, guys, for joining us today to talk about The Daily Show and the new segments that you've got going on. So, Zubin, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how much work it actually takes to put an episode together. Uh, It takes an enormous amount of work. You know, every day we have to gather together a script. We have to gather together an enormous amount of clips, of graphics packages, of field teamwork, of editing. All that has to be done under a production aegis. The people who do the presentation have to be, they have to get dressed, they have to have their hair and makeup done. It is an enormous amount of work that you just end up every day kind of forgetting what you did because it was so much, you just kind of like binge and purge (laughs) with your brain. But it's, the thing I like so much about it is that it is an enormous amount of work to do every day. And so every day you get to do it all over again. So you never have too much time to worry about how the previous day went, whether it was a great show or a show you wish you could have had to do over again. Like, well... Tomorrow's coming, so get ready for it. And I think that kind of pace is is definitely like my favorite type of pace. It gets me you out of your head a lot because you always have to keep moving and you have to keep making jokes and you have to keep finding the best way to put those jokes on air. So I think that's a real value that Late Night offers as opposed to almost any other form of, of film or television production. And Roy, can you talk us through a little bit, or rather walk us through a day, what it's like for you shooting a segment as a correspondent? I think that the coolest thing about the Daily Show from a writing standpoint is just how collaborative the entire building is. Mm. And I think that part of it is something that, you know, having come from the world of a scripted sitcom where it is very much shut your mouth and read what is on this page. If you have an idea, maybe we'll consider it later. But for now, do what's on the page. To go from that to an environment where, hey, can we try this? Absolutely. And matter of fact, let's try this with that, with your idea. And Mm. not just on the floor when it's time to shoot, but in the ideation process of it. I'm in there with the writers. And then you can have producers in there suggesting ideas. Anybody in the building with a good idea or a good point to be made, you are heard. And that part of the show has never been lost. And I think that ultimately that's what helps to create the best possible product at the end of the day. And even on the other side... When it's time to edit and we go, that joke's funny, but it's got to go. We don't have enough time. And this is funny, but put this in. So you can, you're allowed to have input on the tug and war of the creative from inception to completion. So you can pitch an idea at the top of the day. And by the end of the day, you're on studio in a lobster uniform. Kat and Josh, can you talk a little bit about your process and what a day writing is like for you? Yeah, it's different day to day. The morning, like, I feel like we all probably have our news podcasts or certain resources we go to. Like, you kind of wake up and you read the news, look at Twitter trends just to kind of know what's going on to get us anticipate what's probably coming down the road that day. If anything's, like, changed overnight. Like, we all go to bed with an email knowing, like, this is what we're going to try to do tomorrow. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we're like, oh, no, forget all that. All this is happening now. (laughs) So just kind of coming up with ideas, you know, the morning is a great time to pitch stuff of like, all right, we know we're going to cover this story. And so like Jubin and like the head writers and stuff will ask like, okay, if anyone has pitches for like these two or three stories or like this one story, we know we want to cover it, but is there an idea for like a video, a chat with a correspondent, some sort of sketch, like let us know what we could do to help juice this story up a little bit in addition to writing the headline that's going to go with it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's also just a a cumulative effect in how 
being a writer for the show has taught me so much about writing for TV in general. You're learning how storytelling works. So I think that that's the other thing that's really helped me guide both how I write and how I see an overall story, even for a pitch, because that's the the other thing that's like really beautiful about being at the show is that anybody can pitch something. And I, I think that because everyone is so gracious and collaborative in their effort, it's actually what makes pitching a joke bombs hurt that much more because I'm like, wow, these are good people and nobody <laughs> laughed. These are, wow, this joke was, oh, it had no laugh. It's definitely oh bad. My God. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I would add to that, Josh, what I appreciate about that process and knowing all the other mechanics that go into something, making it on or not, that there's this weird peace and calm if your segment doesn't get greenlit or it doesn't get approved, you just keep pitching. And like at no yeah, point have yeah. I ever felt when I pitched something, well, I've pitched four things in a row and nothing. <laughs> am I good? At, do you not like my ideas? I agree. And I remember Juven said to me on my first day, back in the day when we were all in the same room together in the morning and like just looking at the news and pitching jokes, Juven said to me, he was like, don't be afraid to bomb in the room, I'd rather you like say a joke or idea and have it bomb completely and to not have said it. Cause he's like, cause you never know, even the joke that bombs might spark something in someone else that leads to the joke. And I just remember him telling me that it made me feel a lot better. Boy, you definitely took that advice. You bombed over and over. Ooh, I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, you definitely <laughs> One day yeah. I'm gonna get laughed, Shubin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing the interview. Also, thank you for making the show. You guys really make an amazing show. I appreciate all the work that you do. Well, thanks for having us, guys. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening and right on. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Color Gospel Hour. My name is Dan Denton, and I am your host. Misty Rainwater Lights is a poet, small press writer, and legend, an artist, a collage artist, a tarot card reader, uh, astrologer, life advisor, and just all around fascinating, incredible human being. So did you want to be an artist when you were growing up? Actually, well, in seventh grade, I wanted to go to UCLA film school. So with my original YouTube channel, I get hardly no views there, but I make these little pretentious films and I play around with noise and stuff like that. So you still make those films? Oh, yeah, because I had to take breaks from the tarot. It feels sometimes like working in a factory or going to McDonald's or whatever. I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. To give myself a break, I make these little films for my other YouTube channels. I do ASMR and guided meditations and affirmations, stuff like that. And I do rituals for every new moon and every full moon. I'll light candles and I'll beat this little drum. And so I make videos of that. How important do you think the stars and the moon and astrology is? I think it's a blueprint. I think we're given these cards. We're given this blueprint at birth, but I'm not fatalistic about it. I just know that I've studied it since I was a kid and I've just, I've found patterns. I'll look at someone and I'll say, your birthday is in December, isn't it? How the fuck did you know that? Because you're a Capricorn or Sagittarius. So there's absolutely something to it. It matters more. So just the day and the month you're born. It's more, so you're going deeper than that, even like in moons. And oh, stuff. yeah. You can't go by the sun sign. That's what I talk about all day, every day at my channel and my Patreon and with clients. I say, 
people in the West in America, they get it twisted. They look at the sun sign for compatibility or people will trip out on Mars, Venus because Mars, Venus is sexual attraction. You got to have more than that. I did a deep dive in 2014 because I was missing my ex so much. I just, I couldn't handle it. And I was dating manically trying to fill the void. And so I went to astro.com and I looked at my natal chart and the natal charts of my exes. And I thought, I've got to figure this out. And the conclusion that I came to is that you have to look at the moon and Mercury for lasting compatibility because the moon is our pain body, our feelings, our daily habits and routines. Mercury is how we communicate. So I maintain you have to have good synastry with those two things for it to work, for it to last. You do, you do tarot readings over YouTube? Do you do personal readings for people? Do you? Yeah, I've never done a reading in person. So they'll come from my channel. They'll follow the steps. They'll put money in my PayPal. And then they'll send me an email saying, I'm Lisa. I've got moon and Aries. The astral combo. So the astral combo is uh, sun, moon, and rising. And I'm interested in Chad and his combo is sun and Aries, whatever. And they can ask up to three questions. When is he going to contact me again? How does he feel about me? What is our potential? And some clients, the energy feels so bad just in the email, I'll send them a refund and it freaks them out. Why won't you read for me? And I just tell them we're not an energetic fit. I don't word it like that, but I just say the energy's off or whatever. I just, I can't. There are lots of readers at YouTube. The market is saturated. So it's not hard to find someone who will, just take your money and read for you. But I'm very, very firm with my boundaries. I won't just read for anyone. So I'll do a pre-recorded video. I send them a link to their unlisted video at YouTube and that's how they watch it. So if somebody was like interested in like, hey, you know, I, I'm a casual person. I want to get my tarot cards read and into astrology. What would you recommend to them? That they find somebody to read their cards or that they just start reading different books or? People ask me a lot, how did you learn tarot? I got my first deck in, I guess it was 91 after I saw the Doors movie. I was fascinated because there's that witch, Patricia Canelli. So I got my first writer weight and I didn't really do anything with it. And then my other channels that weren't monetized, I would do the occasional card of the day. And then when I saw that people were making a lot of money doing tarot, I thought, I should really get in on that. And so I started doing my channel in 2018. I would say get a deck of cards and just learn yourself. So that way you're not getting conned when you go to someone. I'm glad you joined me tonight. Thanks for letting me be your first Zoom meeting. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Oh, thanks, Misty. I appreciate it. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1946, in what is known as the Royal Indian Navy Revolt. The HMS Talwar was in Bombay Harbor. Indian workers on the ship went on strike. They refused orders from British naval officers. The workers were protesting the abysmal working conditions as well as the awful food they were being served. By the next day, the revolt had spread to British naval facilities on shore. Indian workers had torn down the Union Jack British flag and hung red flags in its place. They took over a local radio station and began broadcasting news of the revolt. As the news of the strike spread to other ports, it grew to include some 20,000 Indian sailors and 74 ships. Workers from the city of Mumbai, also known as Bombay, went on a general strike in support of the cause. 
the British military cracked down harshly on this defiance. Seven sailors were killed and nearly 500 were court-martialed. The revolting strikers did not receive support from Mahatma Gandhi or most Indian nationals who did not support the striking workers' tactics. Yet, the sailors had demonstrated the deep dissent within the ranks of the British Navy in India. Before they surrendered, the striking naval workers drafted a resolution. It read, in part, our uprising was an important historical event in the lives of our people. The coming generations, learning its lessons, shall accomplish what we have not been able to achieve. Long live the working masses, long live the revolution. Indian independence became a reality a year later in 1947. Recognition of the revolting heroes came in the 1970s as the strikers were honored by the Indian government. The Indian Navy named two ships after Madansang and B.C. Dutt. A memorial to the workers is also located in Mumbai. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.